Welcome to the British Army's Leadership Podcast, brought to you by the Centre for Army Leadership. Hello and welcome to this, the latest edition of the CAL podcast with me, Lieutenant Colonel Langley Sharp. It is my absolute privilege to introduce our guest today, Major General Tim Hodgetts, the Surgeon General. General Tim was commissioned in 1983 and trained at Westminster Medical School, qualifying with distinction in 1986, the start of a quite illustrious career. He holds fellowships at no less than five medical institutions, as well as the Royal Geographical Society. Within Defence, General Tim has been responsible for nurturing the speciality of emergency medicine from infancy to maturity. He has implemented concepts, doctrine, equipment, and practice changes to transform the early management of combat injury and led major trauma governance from 1997 to 2010. General Tim has also published extensively both books and journals and regularly lectures internationally as a keynote speaker on leadership, innovation at pace, disaster medicine, and combat casualty care. In 2017, he co-founded the Citizen A charity, designing a free multi-award winning app to support the public during a terrorist attack. General Tim has a list of awards against his name including not least the Officer of the Order of St. John of Jerusalem, Commander of the British Empire, and the Danish Defence Medal for Meritorious Service. He was the Queen's Honorary Physician from 2004 to 2010, before becoming the Queen's Honorary Surgeon in 2018. In 2010, he received the Defence Scientific Advisors Commendation for contribution to research, and has been awarded no less than 18 academic medals including the prestigious Michelin Medal of the Royal College of Surgeons of England. Quite an impressive CV. Well, General, very uh, good morning. Warm welcome to the CAL podcast. How are you this morning? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's, it's great to have you. Um, before we um, get into the, the meat of the questions, I guess one question that a number of our listeners, certainly those outside of the military, will be asking is, what is the Surgeon General? So I wondered if we could just start with that easy one for you. What, what is your role and, and, and what are your responsibilities? So as the Surgeon General, I'm the senior technical authority for all medical advice uh, with, within defence, particularly in relation to operations. Uh, so in that respect, the book will stop with me. From your present to your past, and if we could uh, reach back into your, your childhood and your early years growing up, who are your... Who are your key influences then growing up and, and what is it that drew you into, into medicine? So I, I grew up in a, a small village in Yorkshire, Bramhope near Otley, and my, my grandfather had been governor of children's home there. Uh, and I went to the same school that my father had attended, uh, which was Woodhouse Grove School near, near Bradford. Uh, and I was on a, a full scholarship in that, in that school. So I, I was quite academic uh, uh, growing up. I did three O-levels at the age of 14 and another nine at the age of 15. But my, my principal other activity outside school that I reflect back on was, was music. And I was a trumpeter and I was solo cornet at the Wilson and Silver Cross Prize Brass Band, uh, which was a factory that makes big prams. Uh, and I was a, a bugler on Remembrance Sunday quite apposite given the time of year we're making this uh, recording. But that, uh, that question, what drew me into medicine? It really is the, the classic question that everybody is asked on applying to, to medical school. Why do you want to be a doctor? And for me, I think it was probably a, a natural progression. I was good at sciences. 
Uh, I wanted a, prof a profession as a career, uh, and medicine was a well-respected career. So it was really quite uh, an obvious choice. But I did have a plan B. Uh, the school I was in at that time was really quite small. It's grown a lot since then. Uh, and despite me being academic, the, uh, the headmaster counseled that I might not get into medical school because there were two of us who wanted to go to medical school. So I had to have another option. And we had a really compelling um, army schools liaison officer, a retired brigadier from the artillery. Uh, so he did take me down to Woolwich and uh, he did persuade me that my plan B was to join the Gunners. Uh, and what a different career that would have been. Well, I guess that leads on to my next question. Why the armed forces? Obviously, you, you, you studied medicine, you became a doctor. So your, your future was secure from that perspective. So the plan A was, was good to go, uh, but you fused it with plan B. Yes. Yeah, so, so I think you can see probably the seeds were already there uh, as I was growing up, uh, and particularly as a sixth former in, in terms of thinking about career choices. So above my bed, I had a homemade self-motivation poster which said doctor in the army. So right from uh, kind of sixth form, I was focused on medicine and I was focused on the military. So at the university, I joined the OTC in, in, in London uh, and the infantry section, I had a great time with that. And it really confirmed uh, to me that the culture fitted uh, what, what I wanted to do uh, with, within my career. So I competed for a medical cadetship and I was commissioned in 1983. Fantastic. Well, from 1983, we're fast forward to uh, 1999 when you were in Kosovo with me. Um, and looking at uh, your experience, your vast experience now um, about leading under in some pretty difficult and challenging environments. So uh, I believe in 1999, as, you, as I say, you were deployed into Kosovo and subsequently there you set up uh, an emergency department in the civilian hospital, which, which still exists today. And you, you, you wrote an article titled transferable lessons for clinical leadership of a field hospital where you drew, drew on some of your experience from that operation and you discuss this ability to to transition from transactional leadership style which we would understand as a sort of very um, a, a direct approach in the the opening of that new hospital and i suspect there was uh, inevitability to or requirement to get things done you're under significant pressure uh, at that time but then move into a more transformational style uh, as the team grew around you. Could you just tell us a little bit more about that operation, Kosovo, what was going on at the time, what your role was, and then um, about the need for leaders to transition between these different leadership styles, depending on the context? So let me start with, uh, with Kosovo, because this was really a landmark deployment. It was the first time that accident and emergency, or emergency medicine as we, we call it today, had been used on operations. And that might seem a little absurd, but uh, emergency medicine is the youngest hospital specialty in the military. And I was one of the first two consultants in the army to be trained and I uh, accredited in 1995. So I led the specialty on this first deployment, taking a team from Frimby Park Hospital. Um, and it was at that time a Cinderella specialty and we needed to prove our worth but it was actually ridiculously easy to prove the worth uh, of uh, emergency medicine in a, in a uh, kind of post-conflict nation where there was still a lot of combat-related trauma. Taking charge of the resuscitations uh, of all of the critically injured and taking charge in the, uh, in the Moscow situations. But I think uh, most transformatively, um, what happened was that we were able to collect high-quality clinical data for the first time in our history 
And with that data, we were able to prove that the outcomes in a field hospital, um, which was actually a former children's prison outside Pristina where we set up, those outcomes were the same as in the National Health Service. And this absolutely reframed our thinking within defence because no longer did we have to assume that we could only aspire to NHS standards, but we, we knew now we could equal them and perhaps in the future we could exceed them, uh, which is indeed what we went on to do. But Kosovo opened up two other opportunities uh, for me. Firstly, I was asked to write the disaster plan for K4 uh, as a secondary task and also to, uh, to exercise that. Uh, and even the Russians botted into that. Uh, and why, you might ask, was I uh, asked to do that? It was because I had a reputation uh, having set up the international training for disaster medicine and having written the course uh, in, in 1992 that was uh, being used internationally. And secondly, um, I was asked by a friend, uh, Prof Tony Redmond, another emergency physician, um, who was working as the medical director in Pristina Hospital on behalf of Department for International Development, he asked if I could build an emergency centre. And this challenge uh, was huge because the hospital was 2,400 beds. So that's more than twice the size of the Queen Elizabeth uh, in, in Birmingham today. And it had no existing emergency department. And indeed, the country had no specialty of emergency medicine. And I was given six weeks to build this department to UK best practice standards and create a specialty. Uh, but to my enormous satisfaction with a small team as a secondary task, we did achieve this in that six weeks. We used local builders, we got 13 tonnes of medical equipment flown in from the UK in 48 hours. We, and we used NGOs to uh, provide the initial staffing while we built up the uh, core competencies of uh, the, the, the um, host nation clinical personnel. And most importantly, as you said, 20 years later, it's still there. The, the second part of your <clears throat> question was around leadership styles. Uh, and I'm a strong believer that you have to adapt your style depending on the environment. Uh, so that can be within the military environment or indeed between environments of the military and the NHS, which is something I've had to do repeatedly when coming back from tour. Because what works on a deployment doesn't necessarily work in the NHS environment. And you have to take a breath or better a break uh, and adapt to a, a flatter decision-making uh, structure that exists uh, within the NHS rather than perhaps a more hierarchical structure that, that exists uh, within the uniform military. But within the military environment, what I would regularly observe uh, when I would uh, uh, take a field hospital out, because I've, I've done uh, quite a few tours where I've been uh, first on the ground, is that you could rapidly progress uh, between uh, or along four leadership styles in a matter of uh, a couple of weeks when you're treating casualties at high tempo. So the first of those styles is when you're dealing with an inexperienced team. So the team has just arrived. Everybody is eager to do the very best that they can, but they're a little bit nervous and they need that directive style. They need you to stand at the foot of the bed and tell people what to do. Give each individual doctor and nurse a specific direction. Otherwise, all the doctors will just default to the same task and try and put a drip in. Yet you have to tell them what to do. <clears throat> the second style is when you evolve into the coach. So you stand behind the doctor that you're trying to develop as the team leader. 
and you whisper in the ear, in their ear what they should be uh, uh, doing next in terms of uh, the next action to direct the team. Uh, but you, you, you're, let, you're letting them give the directions, but you're giving them a jolly good firm steer. Then you evolve into the mentor style. So you stand at the back of the resuscitation room. You let the doctor that you are developing get on with it. But if things start to go off the rails, you quickly step forward, give them a nudge and get them back on the, on, onto the tracks. And the fourth style is the self-managed team. This is where I, as medical director, and I've done the medical director role in, in, in six hospitals as the field hospitals, in, as, as the senior doctor on the ground, you can leave the resuscitation, you can go to the rest of the hospital, you can check that the operating theatre is ready, that the intensive care unit is ready, that the blood bank is working effectively to manage the massive transfusion. And you only need to come back to the uh, emergency department if something goes wrong. It's a bit like a pit crew. Nobody needs any direction to do their individual task of filling the, uh, the car with petrol or putting a wheel on. But if they pull the nozzle out a bit too uh, quick and there's a fire, then somebody's got to jump in and give direction uh, to, uh, to manage the unexpected crisis. So those are the four styles that I see evolving uh, rapidly in a field hospital setting. That's invaluable insight, I think, because um, people are often asked when we're talking about leadership, you know, what is your leadership style? Uh, you know, assuming that people are fixed in a certain way that they, they lead teams and achieve, uh, achieve objectives. But I think, as you, as you very eloquently pointed out there, it's, it's about moving along, along that spectrum according to the environment. I, 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 we'll come, up, come back to your experience of the NHS and, uh, and, the, and the, perhaps some of the nuances in, in how you've approached leadership in those different environments between the military and the NHS. But um, coming back to uh, the first part of your answer there, and you've illustrated it well your, yourself in terms of your, your pivotal role in the early days of emergency medicine in the military. But beyond that, I don't think I'm, I'm exaggerating by saying that you have led revolutionary change in not just the, the combat medical field, but, but in, in trauma management more broadly, and indeed beyond the military as we'll, we'll come on to. And certainly from a military perspective, um, this included the creation of clinical guidelines for operations prior to the invasion of Iraq. Um, and, and that being a very tactical example that, that will be very familiar to soldiers that have operated in Iraq and Afghanistan over the last um, 15 to 20 years. But in, in, in 2005 also, you overcame internal resistance to change tactical medical uh, processes that we know um, save lives today. So with innovation then, um, being at the, at the heart of what we're just discussing here, a very much a part of the conversation in the military at the moment in the in the army when we're looking at the future co soldier concept how we optimize the capability of our people um fusing our, our human capability with the te technical innovation how important then is it for leaders to innovate but also to challenge the status quo as you have done and what advice would you give to leaders in doing so so i think the importance of innovation and challenge uh, is summed up in two quotes at least one of which will be well known to the audience from, from Einstein, that if you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always got. So doing things differently is absolutely necessary to break a cycle of inertia. Uh, but there's also the philosopher, philosopher Bertrand Russell who said that progress is only made by unreasonable people, meaning that if you're too reasonable and too compromising, you will never achieve the disruptive innovation that's needed. And more recently, uh, Lieutenant General David Morrison, the uh, chief of the Australian Army, said that the standard you walk past is the standard that you are prepared to accept. 
And while that's perhaps more about behaviours and attitudes, I think it's still at the heart of the intrinsic motivation to act when it's the right thing to do. So what advice could I give, uh, could I offer uh, on uh, acting? And I, I think I would give two uh, pieces of advice. Uh, the first is about being determined, because when you know it's the right thing to do, I would absolutely encourage you to keep going when morally it is, it's the right thing to do. In 2005, I introduced tourniquets for every soldier. <clears throat> this was actually against huge internal resistance uh, played out in the academic journals, largely from our own uh, orthopaedic surgeons who were saying that the tourniquets will do more harm than good. Uh, but of course, we know the evidence has pro proven that to be uh, completely false. Um, and we've saved many, many lives. In fact, we have a cohort of what we call unexpected survivors, people who would not have survived in a previous uh, conflict. But since 2015, I found myself rehearsing exactly the same arguments that we were doing in the, uh, in the, in the military uh, 10 years before uh, within the civilian community when trying in, to introduce uh, tourniquets as, as part of an enhanced uh, means for the public to be prepared to deal with a deliberate attack. Um, and only just this year has the paradigm shifted. And the paradigm has shifted from tourniquets are dangerous to you can use tourniquets uh, to save lives. And the voluntary aid societies just this year have reintroduced tourniquets into the National First Aid Manual. So hurrah, it's been a really long slog, but it's been the right thing to do and to be persistent and determined to make sure that the public can get the same benefits from what our soldiers have enjoyed uh, since 2005. It's fascinating. And, and even at the tactical level, as a platoon commander in the sort of early 2000s, I remember those conversations with, uh, with the medics about tourniquets coming in. Um, and there's a lot of nervousness that we'd do more damage than good. Um, yeah, there was one other piece of advice as well. Um, so first was be determined. The second was to focus on the output and not the process. Because if you work in an organization or part of an organization, where it's become more important to do it the right way rather than to do the right thing, then I would say that you are working in a process zoo. Uh, and I could introduce you to the animals uh, in that zoo. They are the monkey, the sheep, the porcupine, and the sloth. Uh, but rather, I would uh, encourage you to Google this uh, and find the article in Management Today from 2015 that I wrote with some, uh, some colleagues and enjoy identifying who you know who fits one of those particular descriptors. I can't wait to read that article now. <laughs> that sounds fascinating. I, I'm going to come back to, to, to that in a minute, uh, your, your point on purpose. I've got a question on that, which um, speaks to, to, to the heart of that. Um, and my next goes on to your experiences from Afghanistan. And I guess Afghanistan really uh, is, is what we associate, is the operation we associate where there have been some really significant advances in medicine that have translated uh, more broadly into, into the civilian world of trauma, man trauma management. Have you, you've already identified some of those now. So uh, can you just take us back to your time in Afghanistan? What leadership lessons specifically did you learn from working in this environment? So, so the, the simple answer is many. Uh, and I have actually codified these uh, for the benefit of clinicians, particularly into, uh, into four books. Um, I, I've done 30 books overall, but the, these four books are uh, kind of clinical leadership rules. And the books are trauma rules, 
trauma rules too, incorporating military trauma rules, uh, disaster rules, and resuscitation rules. So, so I've tried to simplify some of that experience into reproducible uh, understanding uh, for others. And, and those books have been translated into, in, into multiple languages. So what key lessons could I extract from that? And, and um, let me just take, take three lessons. The first is assume the worst and proceed accordingly. Uh, and that links directly to the second, which is don't let the obvious distract from the occult. Uh, because with a patient who uh, comes in on a stretcher with a limb missing and a tourniquet on, everyone's going to focus on the fact they've got a limb missing. But that may not be what the patient is going to die from because you've actually controlled the hemorrhage on that limb with the tourniquet and they've got hidden injuries from shrapnel, uh, which could actually prove uh, uh, fatal. So don't let the obvious uh, distract from the occult. But I, I think my, my greatest challenge for leadership in Afghanistan, I would say, has been about ethics and the clash between the military and the medical ethical frameworks. So the military ethical framework, I would say, is deontology, or what I call good soldier theory, and it's about putting duty first. And it means keeping field hospitals empty, so the commander has the freedom of movement to take action that generates casualties but it can leave idle clinicians frustrated because in comparison, teleology, which I call good doctor theory, is about putting the patient first. So if you have resources and capacity, you will want to treat those in need, whether they are military or local nationals. So you can therefore see an ethical tension and a tightrope that you walk on a daily basis as the medical director balancing, maintaining capacity of the, uh, uh, the, the field hospital, while also maintaining the uh, strong imperative of clinicians to treat those in need. Great. I, I'm definitely going to come back to one on, on ethics, because I think that's, uh, that's fascinating what you've drawn on there. So we'll come back to that, if, if I may. Again, drawing back on your experiences in Afghanistan, you were leading some genuinely diverse teams there, covering multinational partners, regular reserve uh, personnel, and, and, and of course, several different medical trades. How difficult was leading such diverse teams and, and what lessons do you think, more importantly, translate to other sectors? I think it could have been very difficult, particularly when I was leading a, a multinational hospital uh, that was half Danish, a quarter American, quarter Brit, and a handful of Estonians. But I, I did uh, take specific actions in the year leading up to that uh, deployment because I knew it was coming uh, in order to mitigate it. Firstly, I, I learned the language. I learned Danish. Uh, it's a little bit like gargling pebbles. Uh, I went to uh, Copenhagen and had one-to-one -one, um, uh, tuition because I wanted to know that I could run a resuscitation in Danish if people became anxious in a multiple casualty situation and defaulted to their own language. Um, but it also meant that I learned culture along the way. And when I met the staff for the first time, I had memorized all of their photographs and what their jobs were, and I was able to greet them in their own language and say something about their own job. Uh, and that was a hugely positive investment in time and effort because it completely broke down the cultural barriers of it's not an outsider telling you what to do, it's somebody who knows your language, uh, knows you as in, an, an individual and, and is part of uh, that, that greater team. Um, but what I also did is I, I studied international culture and I studied the work of a guy called Gert Hofstede, 
uh, and you can find his website uh, online. And, that, and uh, his work allows comparison of national cultures according to six domains. And it was extraordinarily predictive of behaviours and cultural frictions when you looked at the uh, UK-US cultures, which are similar, they're not the same, but they are similar, uh, but they're very different to a Scandinavian uh, culture. And one of Hofstede's cultural domains is masculinity and femininity. And these are awful terminologies rooted in 1970s uh, literature. Uh, and what they actually uh, relate to is competitive versus nurturing. So what he refers to as ma masculine, we would uh, now regard as a competitive culture. And what he refers to as feminine, we would now re regard as a, a nurturing culture. But it absolutely explained why the Danish surgeon uh, became very frustrated within a couple of weeks. Because in a team of three surgeons, one UK, one US, one American, uh, one uh, Danish, then uh, the UK and the US would be struggling to be in charge uh, because they had a competitive culture, whereas the, uh, the, the Danish would not. But by the end of the two weeks, the Danish was frustrated that they, that they couldn't actually uh, do what they needed to do within the operating theatre. Uh, so that was simple, cultural clash, day one, UK in charge, day two, US in charge, day three, Denmark in charge, and just rotate on a, 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 a thrice daily uh, rotor. And that's absolutely solved that particular issue. Uh, I could give many other examples of uh, the, the, uh, the cultural frictions that were uh, predictable and uh, were resolved. But the lesson to take away is do study international cultures when you're going into that multinational environment, because it's absolutely transferable uh, and it will pay dividends. That's fascinating. I think you've you've touched on three critical elements of of leadership there: knowing your people, and in this case, learning the, knowing their language as well, which is which is impressive. Uh, the importance of culture, uh, very topical at the moment in the British Army. Not least, we've got a uh, a conference coming up on the first of December, uh, leadership and culture, where we're discussing this in detail. And, and finally, the importance of learning. And I think you've uh, you, you've You've talked to that in space, not in, in terms of your, your own learning for, for operations, but in terms of also translating your lessons into a literature for others. You've previously spoken about the ethical lessons and you've, we, we've just touched on, on those just now. The ethical lessons uh, and the tensions sorry, of treating local civilians in both Afghanistan and Iraq and I guess combatants as well, as well as your commitment to treat injured soldiers and the potential standoff between them. Um, so I wonder if you could just expand a little bit more on that. Did you struggle with these ethical dilemmas? Uh, yes, I, I would say ethics probably was, was the biggest issue uh, for me from, from a leadership perspective. And I had repeated difficult ethical dilemmas. Do you admit or don't you admit, particularly in terms of a local national, you would always take uh, the, uh, the British service personnel, no matter how full the hospital is, we will always find space for the British personnel. But with incapacitate, do you admit or not admit the local nationals? Uh, do you treat or don't treat? And if you do treat, how much? Uh, and one of the greatest challenges we had uh, before we went uh, to Sierra Leone uh, in 2014 uh, was how much treatment are we going to give for Ebola? Are we going to put people on ventilators? Are we going to give them blood products? Are we going to give them renal replacement therapy when, the, when their kidneys fail? Because until you've worked out uh, what you are prepared to treat, then you can't work out the configuration of your field hospital, what staff you need, what equipment you need, uh, what, what capacity you need. So uh, you, you've got to get the ethics right up front in order to drive 
the, uh, the clinical requirement. And in fact, the very first thing we did before um, sending the field hospital <clears throat> to Ebola, and we only had six weeks to uh, prepare for it, was to hold an ethical conference and pull all the cl senior clinicians together and set the ethical tone because that allowed everything else to flow from it. Um, but going, going back to the Afghan uh, environment, and indeed all of the uh, places I've deployed uh, over the years, part of my dealing with these ethical challenges has been, for 30 years, has been to write war poetry. Um, some of which I've published, some has been performed at Edinburgh Fringe uh, last year, uh, was performed at Virtual Edinburgh Fringe, some of it's been exhibited in National Army Museum and some has been exhibited in, in Washington. And one specific uh, dilemma uh, that I've had to reflect on is, am I a doctor or a soldier first? Uh, which is something uh, yeah, uh, you, you do have to think about. And it's summarised in the final verse of one specific poem that I wrote, which is as follows. A soldier or a doctor first, my wounded ethics can be nursed. It's better than my brain spilled on poppies in an Afghan field. Wow, powerful stuff. Just out of interest, how did you deal with perhaps different ethical stance of, of staff around you? Did, did, you all, did you all come to the same conclusions broadly on, on, on the decisions that you made? Right, so the, the, the critical factor here is to have um, discussed before you deploy um, the, the potential ethical issues. The time to discuss the ethical issues is not over the patient uh, because there will be frictions, it will create anxiety, it will create tension. So it's the training environment, it's the field hospital uh, kind of final pre-deployment exercise where uh, you run for five days at high tempo, um, an exercise with realistic casualties, some of which are live casualties, some of which are uh, you know, sim simulated dummies. But you, that's where to pose the, the, the um, ethical questions. Do I treat? Don't I treat? Do I admit? Don't I admit? And how much treatment do I give? Uh, and people will then come to a consensus. They may be uncomfortable with it. It may be different to what they might practice in the firm base, but if everyone has uh, become comfortable with this is the way we're going to tackle this problem if it arises, then it is so much easier to deal with when you're deployed. And just out of interest, do you think that that has become uh, an increasingly prevalent conversation in the NHS recently, particularly with COVID, where speaking to a number of clinicians over that over that period, certainly in the first six months or so, I, don't, I know a lot of them were were grappling with the ethical decisions that they had to, to make, given the, uh, the the gravity of the situation. Uh, absolutely. Two years ago, uh, I would have thought that the only place that we see these really difficult ethical tensions is in a field hospital, where you've got finite people, finite resources, uh, and, and uh, specific kind of rules of eligibility, who you can and you can't treat, and how much treatment you can give. But that is exactly where the NHS has been. Uh, with COVID and particularly with intensive care, having to have triage decisions of who you are and who you are not going to ventilate uh, and what additional treatments you are going to give those individuals. So the NHS has been exposed uh, at scale to the type of tension that we see on every single deployment in the field. And perhaps one way you've dealt with that is, is, is unity of purpose. And you talked about purpose uh, previously. What do you mean by this? I know it's very important to you. What do you mean by this? And looking back, how important was that during those, those particularly difficult days in Afghanistan and elsewhere? 
Yeah, so the unity of purpose in a field hospital is really quite a remarkable thing to experience when the message comes in that there's one or more critically injured uh, casualties uh, about to arrive. You feel the whole unit turn and focus on the needs of that individual uh, or, or group of patients with an absolutely exquisite uh, sense of, uh, of single purpose. I think the importance is that Everybody has an active part in that machine from the individuals who do the slick unload of the ambulances and get them into the recess room or the operating theatre really quickly to those that take the x-rays or run the blood tests or the, the, the massive transfusion in the blood bank or, or those that actually operate on and, uh, and nurse the patient on ITU and the, on the ward. So it means that everyone can feel proud of a good outcome because it's very much a, a collective uh, a team effort. But equally, when the outcome isn't good, then we all stand together. Uh, and, and as a team, we can support each other. Uh, we uh, Often I would uh, you know, call, call a pause. A padre may come in, say a few words, but then you move on. You have to move on. You have to uh, accept what you might do differently in the future, but you've got to be ready for the next patient who's about to come through the door. If I can come back now to... Um, something you discussed earlier in the, in the podcast, which is uh, the relationship between challenge and hierarchy and perhaps some of the differences between your experience in the NHS and, uh, and in the army. And, and just, just looking back on um, Matthew Said, uh, who's a guest of ours at the Remote Leadership Conference early in March, and, and his book, Black Box Thinking, which a number of people will, ha- will have read, compares the aviation industry to the, the, to, 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 to the medical profession in terms of learning from failure. And he draws on some of the experience of the, the um, aviation industry where failure is taken very seriously. Uh, when we talk about uh, aircraft equipped with the indestructible black box, which provides the, the, the sort of critical evidence to understand what went wrong in the, in the case of a fatal uh, accident and how proficient now that industry has become in, in learning from those failures to ensure they don't make, make the same, same mistakes again. He, uh, Said argues uh, conversely that in medicine, the hierarchical structure of surgical teams leads to issues in challenge culture, uh, culture, admitting mistakes, and most importantly, learning from them. So from someone like yourself who's been at the forefront of trauma and surgical teams in a number of different environments now, is there an element of truth in this? And is there a place for a challenge culture in an operating theatre? So Matthew needs to come and talk to me because I could absolutely open his eyes uh, on, on this particular issue in our, our military context. But I do uh, at, really do recognise that hierarchy can discourage challenge. Uh, and this, I think, was a key difference between the UK-US culture and the Scandinavian culture that played out uh, in that uh, particular hospital. So if we go back to Gert Hofstede's six domains, one of the domains is called the power distance index, which is the natural social hierarchy stretch uh, within a a nation. And within the UK and the US, it is quite stretched. So there's a big difference between the the medical student or the junior doctor and the consultant, and never would the medical uh, student think of challenging uh, the consultant. But in the Scandinavian uh, culture, it's much more compressed. It's much more egalitarian. It's a much flatter uh, and hierarchical structure. And what that means is that the uh, the doctors uh, are challenged by the nurses. Uh, the uh, uh, the doctors are challenged by the juniors, and you have to be prepared for for, for more challenge in that uh, that different social construct. So, how did we overcome our naturally stretched uh, power distance index? 
uh, within within the UK structure. Um, and uh, I started a, a program in, in 1997 uh, to um, develop major trauma audit and learn from every single uh, serious injury and every single death. And I introduced that in Kosovo in 1999, which is why we were able to prove uh, that our outcomes were as good as a civilian hospital. But by the time of the start of the Iraq war in, in 2003, we had the system in every single deployed um, field um, hospital or, or ship where we could collect uh, th that real-time data and analyze it. So we could collect data from point of wounding all the way through the treatment chain to Birmingham in real time. Uh, and from 2004, we had part of my clinical team attend the post-mortem in Oxford of every operational death. And we held peer review panels to analyze all of those deaths. And we would also include a tactical expert, such as an infantry expert, to try and make sure we were properly understanding what the events were on the ground. Uh, therefore, we, we didn't uh, attribute uh, that a uh, cause of death was completely preventable when they might have died in a minefield and people had already been injured trying to rescue them in a, mine, in a minefield. So the commander had said, stop, nobody else run into the minefield. We're going to have to prod our way to that, that, that particular individual. So we, we had to get that operational context and overlay it on top of the, uh, the, the clinical situation. Uh, and uh, again, from 2004, uh, we ran an international clinical conference, which I chaired for, for many years, called the Joint Theatre Clinical Case Conference. It was attended by all of the deployed uh, uh, field hospitals, but it was led from Birmingham, and it also had PGHQ on the line, uh, and it had uh, the Army Medical Services Training Centre on line, who were training the next hospital to go out the door, so they were listening to the issues of the day. Um, and we would uh, feed all of the lessons that we get from that, uh, that, that weekly conference into the training serials. And we would drive training changes or drive guideline changes on a week by week basis. And it's why we had a strategic drift in our outcomes from what was possible back home in the UK, because we were developing on a weekly timescale, not monthly, not yearly a weekly timescale, we were getting better and better. That's fascinating. Um, and again, I think, you know, many people that understand leadership understand the importance of, of learning from mistakes or learning from failure or, or, or you know, uh, having a mindset of constant uh, in, improvement, but do, doing it on such a robust evidence-based uh, basis is, uh, is, is, is key. Out of interest, did the power distance index dynamics within your team change then? Did... Did, for example, the more egalitarian uh, Danish approach have an effect on how the rest of the team dynamics worked? Or did you tend to sort of stay in your national stovepipes over time? No, I think it's inevitable that you get that uh, blend emerging in that multinational setting. Uh, and indeed, the, the, the real strength of the multinational setting is that you can take the very best from each of the different cultures or each of the different practices, and you produce a hybrid, and it is quite unique to that particular phase of the operation, uh, that the hybrid that you are you manage to achieve. Now, you hope that some people will take those best practices back to the, the individual environments from where they came. But at the time, yes, you do get that blended approach.
Uh, moving on to decision making, uh, you've previously identified decisiveness as your most important leadership characteristic in a in a crisis situation. I mean, interestingly, you cite that between 40% and 70% knowledge of a given situation, however that be defined, is, is, is optimum to, to make those decisions. Why is decisiveness so important to you? And do you think that in the information age specifically, some leaders are now guilty of trying to get 100% ground truth before making a decision? Okay, so if I can, first of all, uh, quote Nicholas Colney, who was physician to Henry V, uh, and he said, it's the mark of a mature mind to bear uncertainty with equanimity. Um, and what I can take from that is that there's much uncertainty in medicine, and particularly my own specialty of emergency medicine. You don't know what's coming through the door next, uh, and you will have limited information on which to make a decision and start to treat the patient. And then you'll have to adjust uh, as the, the situation unfolds. And I think we can say that the same uh, of uh, wider uh, military in the conflict or disaster environment, that there's a lot of uncertainty. But the enemy in emergency medicine, and I think the enemy in conflict, uh, is often time. And you have to act, or rather you've got to decide, and you've got to decide on that limited information, um, which is also known as bounded rationality. And it's what underpins Colin Powell's 40-70 principle that you uh, referred to there, where if you've got less than 40% of the information, you probably can't make a safe decision. But if you've waited until you've got more than 70% of the information, you may have waited too long, uh, and the enemy may already have acted, that the enemy's got inside your rude loop, observe, orientate, decide, and act. And COVID is a really good example, because in a pandemic, with cases doubling every few days, you've got to act. You may not have all the answers yet, you may not have all the pure science, but you've got to do something uh, to try and uh, take the, uh, the head off this, this rising pandemic. And I think the ability to act on limited information does come from experience, which creates that deep intuition. And I'm a really strong believer that in medicine, seniority saves lives. If you put senior individuals on the ground who've got uh, that, that experience, then they will make decisions quicker uh, and they will make decisions with less reliance on confirmatory tests. And I think uh, in exceptional circumstances, the most exceptional form of, uh, of decisiveness is what Napoleon referred to as coup d'oeil or blink of an eye. Uh, where uh, he could stand on a little mound to the side of the battlefield, look out in front of him and know exactly how to use the various troops at his disposal. Uh, and I would say in medicine, if you can walk into a full resuscitation room, you take a look around and you know which is the most critically injured patient that demands uh, your immediate attention. Sometimes it requires a blast of a whistle, and I've used that on more than one occasion, just to get everybody to shut up for a few seconds, for you to take control of the room, and then uh, tell people what you're going to do. I think you've, you've touched on something there, certainly from my personal experience, the very best leaders I've known have been particularly good at knowing when to act and when not to act. And it's... And it, and it's always contextual. It's always uh, depend on the environment. But the, those individuals that have the judgment to know when to stop seeking from information and make a decision at a critical moment um, is often the mark of uh, a good leader or not. Moving on, anyone who's been involved in a trauma incident will know just how very stressful uh, and, and complex those situations can be. 
a lot of your research and broader work indeed is focused on simplifying the the, the complex and, and I know this has become synonymous with you and your work an example of this again a frontline example that many of our, um, our army soldier listeners will understand is the the battlefield ca casualty drills so why is it important for leaders to narrow complexity and and what advice would you give to leaders in simplifying the complex so, so there's a sentinel event that pushed me down this path uh, right back in 1991. In fact, it was the 30th anniversary of it just a couple of weeks ago. And we held a little commemoration in, in the Guards Chapel. Um, so 2nd of November 1991, the IRA blew up the military hospital I was in, in Belfast. Um, and I was uh, there as the, as the registrar, as the internal medicine uh, uh, specialist. But I acted as the medical commander at that particular instant, even though I was still a relatively junior doctor. And I did reflect on it deeply. And I thought that, well, we could do better in the future if we had a simple system, uh, an all-hazard approach. So whether it's a, a bombing, a road accident, a plane crash, is there a simple system that we can overlay on any multiple casualty setting? to get consistent uh, and optimal uh, response in those vital first 10, 30, uh, 60 minutes. So together with some civilian colleagues, I invented one. Uh, it was called MIMS, Major Instant Medical Management Support, um, and it had seven key principles, command, safety, communications, assessment, triage, treatment, transport. Uh, and a lot of what is in that course uh, um, has kind of permeated through uh, other aspects of um, uh, the emergency response. And it became the international civilian standard and uh, the NATO standard since uh, 2004, and it endures today. But why did I do it? What was my motivation to do, to do that? I wanted to know that the next time that I came across something like this, it was going to be easier for me, uh, that I could perform optimally from the bang. I've got to try and reduce this complexity uh, to overcome insecurity that I can do better. So, uh, you know, there's that internal feeling of insecurity that you can, you can do uh, better in the future. Um, and from that MIMS course, uh, which was first run in 1993 and the associated books, well, it came the methane message. So you may have may be familiar with the, the methane message and that's now used by all uh, emergency services. I, I made that up in a golf club in Stirling uh, in 1992. <laughs> Um, then also the mist message, which you will know uh, on the, the nine liner. I actually made that up in Australia in 1994. Uh, battlefield casualty drills in 1998. And most recently, the Citizen Aid app. Uh, and you can download this. It's free to the public. It's a, it's a charity uh, uh, app. Uh, so a charity I set up with other military and civilian colleagues to give advice to the public to prepare them what to do in a deliberate attack, whether it's shooting, stabbing, uh, uh, bombing or, or, or vehicle attack. And uh, we launched that um, in uh, the beginning of 2017, um, presciently before uh, that string of terrorist uh, events uh, across the country. But what I'd say is that from MIMS to battlefield casualty drills to citizen aid, it's been an evolution of serial simplification. And ultimately, we've uh, reduced a system that was supposed to be simple for the uh, medical profession to a, sim a system that's simple for a soldier to use and has uh, proven effective for 20 years to a system now that the public can use. So I would say absolutely serial simplifier uh, to try and get these, uh, these messages out. 
The other question that you asked was, uh, you know, what advice would I give to leaders in, in simplifying the, co uh, the complex? Um, well, I've got th three little uh, pieces of advice. Firstly, I'd say, remember uh, what Churchill wrote when he said, I apologize for writing a long letter, but I didn't have time to write a short one. And it takes a huge amount of effort to be succinct while also minimizing ambiguity and avoiding the opportunity for misinterpretation. And I learned this when I was editing the world's leading medical handbook, which is actually in the uh, uh, general bestseller list uh, quite a while ago. It was beating Delia Smith's cookery book at the time. Um, but you were only allowed one page per subject, one page per medical subject. So you had to pick your words extremely carefully uh, to be able to uh, fit them on the word without, uh, on the page without ambiguity or misinterpretation. The second issue I'd say is use a picture or an icon rather than words if, if you can, because it increases access, accessibility, particularly for an international audience, and it reduces the reading age or um, the, the need to compensate for dyslexia. And you may be surprised or not surprised that there's, you know, there's a fair amount of dyslexia uh, within our service population. So let's keep things as simple as possible if we, if we can. And then also think hard about the mnemonics that you choose. What really does make a mnemonic memorable? Um, in 2005, uh, when I was introducing the, uh, the tourniquets and the topical hemostatics and the elastic bandages, uh, we changed from ABC, airway breathing circulation, to CABC, catastrophic hemorrhage, airway breathing circulation. And I put a triangular bracket around the first C just to make it a little bit different. And that has endured. People have remembered, and when they write down CABC, they're writing it with that triangular bracket because it makes it stand out. Um, I, I, I've had a look at um, uh, acronyms for, inno uh, for innovation and what we do well in innovation and what we uh, could do better. And one of those acronyms is adopter. So to be able to bring innovation into your organization from outside, you've got to be a good innovation adopter. Agile, decisive, outcome focused, politically aware, tolerant of risk, empowered and rewarded. But what the acronym uh, is, is it's meaningful. So adopter has a meaning uh, to the purpose of the acronym. So um, if you're picking an acronym, uh, you know, make it as meaningful as possible. And then finally, rhyme, I have found, can be quite helpful. Uh, to uh, be able to remember things in, in, a, in, in a difficult situa situation. So uh, recently we've, uh, within the Citizen Aid Charity, we introduced a, a tourniquet rule for children where we're teaching uh, a tourniquets to children. So if I've tried to pack and press or there is no other way to stop the bleeding more or less, I can use a tourniquet. So just a, perhaps a, a simple way to remember the rules for tourniquet. So that's my advice. Very sage advice, General. And um, and I'm, I'm smiling as you uh, I was smiling as you were going through your list of work there and looking at Mr. Nickel, who's uh, joined me today uh, on the podcast W on Leadership. And we are both of the generation who have definitely been the beneficiaries uh, of your work on the front line over a, a number of operations. So I think it's fair to say you've left your left your legacy and not just in beating Delia Smith on the bestseller list. Um, time is uh, not of the essence, so we're going to draw to a close with some quick-fire questions, as is customary. So first off, who is the best leader you've ever known or worked with, and why? Professor Harold Ellis. 
surgeon at Westminster Hospital while I was a medical student, superb technical surgeon, enigmatic, charismatic, inspirational teacher and author, and a great simplifier of complex concepts. Most inspirational leader from history and why? Um, lots to choose from, but I've chosen Captain Noel Godfrey Chavas, uh, MC, VC and Bar, son of the Bishop of Liverpool, a 400 metre Olympian, MC in Belgium 1915, VC in France 1916, second VC in 1917 in Belgium when he was attending injured while severely wounded. He did ultimately die of his wounds and the citation said, by inspiring example, he was instrumental in rescuing many wounded who would otherwise have succumbed. Most valuable leadership lesson you've learned? If you know it's the right thing to do, whatever the obstructions, be determined to see it through. And while vision and creativity are the fertile ground for innovation, you can't harvest the results without determination. And you've got to have that determination to tackle the obstructions, or as I refer to, innovation constipation. And the acronym for that is BOWELS. With hindsight, what would you tell a young uh, Timothy Hodgetts on day one at middle school about leadership? I was a cadet on day one at middle school. If you want to make money, leave the army, and do private practice, probably dermatology, because you make your patients better, but they never get cured, so they keep coming back. But if you want to make a difference, stay in the army, follow your instincts, you'll be just fine. A final question, sir. What is the medical profession's greatest leadership challenge for the future? So the immediate future, I would say, is keeping the profession engaged in the years recovering from COVID because people are exhausted and the health system remains really very overheated. And sadly, there are no easy or quick solutions, perhaps other than continued strong leadership. General, thank you very much indeed. It's been a fascinating hour in which there are lessons for us all, not just in the military, uh, but for leaders across every sector. Um, you've clearly left a, a, a legacy in the work that you've done over many decades now, and you're the exemplar of a soldier scholar. So for everything you've done uh, for the military and more broadly, thank you very much indeed. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, I hope you agree with me that that was a fascinating discussion with Major General Timothy Hodgetts, the Surgeon General, drawing not only on many invaluable and indeed highly transferable leadership insights, but also for me acted as a whistle-stop tour of a career that has sat at the forefront of pioneering advances in trauma and emergency care medicine. We talked about leadership styles where General Tim reflected on the importance of adapting according to your environment, or as our doctrine says, the, the importance of the context in which you operate. And General Tim spoke from personal experience about how his style went through a series of transitions when working with inexperienced teams, starting at the more directive approach, moving to coach, stepping back to mentor, and finally, uh, self-managed teams. We also spoke about the importance of innovation and challenge, where the general reference Bertrand Russell, progress is only made by unreasonable people, stressing the need for disruptive innovation. For the general, this required first determination, especially when there is an, a moral imperative to your work, and second, a focus on the output, not just the process. Focus on the right thing, not necessarily the right way, he said. He also spoke about his leadership lessons from Afghanistan. Assume the worst and proceed accordingly. Don't let the obvious distract from the occult. 
And lastly, he spoke about the challenges he faced concerning the clash between the military and medical ethical frameworks, with some seasoned advice on how to prepare for difficult ethical decision-making. Reflecting on his experience of leading a diverse team on operations, I reflected that General Tim must be an exemplar in both understanding your people and understanding your environment, as is so important for leaders in all fields. Going to extraordinary lengths as he did to set the foundations for his own leadership success prior to deploying to command a multinational team. Not only studying the background of everyone on his team, as well as conducting research into the theory of international cultures, but by learning a whole new language, no less. And finally, we discussed decision-making and the inevitable tension every leader has to negotiate. At what point do you stop trying to understand the particular problem or context you face, transition that into actually making a decision? And for General Tim, he reflected that time was the enemy in emergency medicine as it is in conflict. And what was demanded was bounded reality. And for this, he drew on Colin Powell's theory of 4070. Less than 40% information, you are unlikely to have enough to make an informed decision. More than 70%, you might have waited too long. A fascinating discussion with a genuine pioneer in the field of medicine, but whose insights and lessons are invaluable to leaders in any field. If you like what you've heard today, please do subscribe to our podcast. Please also share and comment, that would be much appreciated. For more information on leadership in the British Army, do visit our website, Centre for Army Leadership, and of course, follow us on our social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn.